0: Thank you for being here. I'm excited about tonight. Uh, this is a message that... Um, well, I'm going I'm to tell you where this came from, actually. I'm going I'm to uh, do a praise report on the sacred season. So if you don't know what sacred season, TJ gave a little bit uh, during our intro. Uh, sacred season is a, is a season of prayer and fasting uh, that our church uh, family is doing together. And if I can give a couple of praise reports, if you weren't here last Sunday night... Um, my son, Ethan, came forward and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And uh, that was like an hour into sacred season, and I thought, all right, um, this, this is going to be a powerful couple of weeks. Um, and then sure enough, um, Monday night was, was the next thing that I experienced, and I, I, would, I, you know, I would love to pass the microphone around and have you all tell about sacred season, but uh, Monday night, um, a, a good friend of mine in ministry whose church is also doing sacred season, he is actually at Palmetto Point where we got our materials from. And um, it, it turns out that, that God, um, he, he had both of us restless Monday night um, with the same idea that God is trying to, to get us to see people, um, trying to have us see people the way he sees people. He's trying to change our perspective and to see people through his eyes. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to do that, okay? And so tonight is a little bit of that. Next week, I'm gonna do kind of a two-part. It's gonna be a different topic, but it's gonna go along the idea of uh, perspective change and seeing people the way Jesus sees them because his eyes are so different than ours. And uh, in fact, last Sunday, I asked, asked you this question to kind of consider your perspective on something. Do your thoughts change your actions or do your actions change your thoughts? And I hope some of you kind of chewed on that for the week um, because typically we think that our thoughts change our actions, but as we find out every January with New Year's resolutions is that our thoughts typically don't actually change our actions. We want them to, but they don't. But if you study human behavior and you study habits, which is all designed by God, by our perfect Creator. If we change our habits, it actually begins to change our thoughts. And you want to know something? That is a biblical principle found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's one of my favorite verses when Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so instead of our thoughts changing our actions, right, our actions actually change our thoughts. we see that in the lives of the disciples. They chose to follow Jesus, but they didn't know he was the son of God. See what happened there? They chose to follow him first, and then ultimately they came into the knowledge of who Jesus was. In that case, their actions changed their thoughts. So anyway, so I'm in this season of perspective changing, trying to change your perspective on things. And so make sure you're here next week um, as we kind of do another um, perspective changing time. And so... For the last um, 13 years now, I've been a police officer and I have spent most of that time or or at least uh, about eight years of that time as a detective. And as a detective, that means that I investigate crimes of a serious nature um, and it often means that my day or my time, um, I spend in court. And what I want to do is I want to familiarize you a little bit with the process um, of a courtroom, of a standard courtroom um, he, here in our country. And so maybe you're familiar, maybe you watch uh, crime dramas, you know, courtroom dramas, you know, Law and Order is like one of the classic ones or the movie A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth, right? Stuff like that. It's very interesting. It's very engaging. It's very exciting to watch. And that's, of course, why um, there are dozens of shows uh, that you can watch. But what I've done is I've set up a little bit of a courtroom in here because I want to share with you a little bit um, about how things go. And so typically over here at this table, um, I've got a sign here that says the prosecutor. So typically over here at this table is the prosecutor. This is the one who is bringing the charges, okay? Sometimes they're referred to as the district attorney. Sometimes, and in our state, they're referred to as the solicitor. So when you're voting for the solicitor, if you never knew what that was, that's what you're voting for. You're voting for the district attorney, the one who works for the state to prosecute cases and and bring charges against people. And so the prosecutor is here, and they are the one who uh, is accusing the accused. And so this piece of paper here, it says accused. And so this is what we call the defendant. This is the person who is being accused of committing a crime. This is the person who has allegedly um, committed a crime. And at the table with them is their defense attorney. so the defense attorney, that's their attorney. The attorney who comes into court, that's the attorney, that's a person who is a member of the South Carolina bar And they've gone to law school and they've passed the tests and they say, I know what I'm doing and I'm here to represent you. I'm here to defend you. I am here to speak on your behalf. And then, of course, up here, kind of ruling over the whole room, is the judge, right? And so you come into the courtroom and in this case, we're not going to have a jury. We're just going to do what's called a bench trial. And a bench trial is the idea that the judge hears the facts of the case and determines if the accused is guilty or not guilty. This happens every day in courtrooms all across our country, certainly across the world in different models, but every day all across the country, this is the essence of our criminal justice system. And here's what happens. The prosecutor comes in and the prosecutor says, Your Honor, these are the charges. The person is accused of whatever. And so then the judge says to the defense attorney, um, who is acting in lieu of or on behalf of or advocating for their client, says, What does your client plea? And he says, Well, he pleads not guilty. And so, in that case, we would go to a trial. And in this case, the prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused did, in fact, commit this crime. And so, so begins the case, the prosecution. And so the prosecutor will call up witnesses. And so the witnesses will go to the witness stand and they will say, well, this is what happened and this is what I saw and this is what I heard. And the prosecutor will ask them more questions. What did you see? Do you, do you see that person in the courtroom today? And oftentimes the witness or the victim will say, yes, he is, seated, he is seated right over there. And they'll go through those questions and stuff like that. And then at some point in the process, the defense attorney has a chance to what we call cross-examination. To cross-examine would be to question the witness and say, well, wait a minute. You said he came into the gas station with a mask on. So how can you say that it was my client? That is the type of questions that get asked on a cross-examination. It is our legal right under our Bill of Rights to cross-examine or question witnesses. It's a big part of our legal system that we have an opportunity to question that because, of course, and the reason why that came along in our Bill of Rights is because there was a time where you weren't allowed to do that. The witness would come in, they would say whatever they wanted, and then the judge would rule. But in our system, you have an opportunity to cross-examine. At some point, the prosecutor will also um, bring evidence, and they will say, here is a photo, here is a video, here is a witness statement, here is a fingerprint that was found on scene, and they will present this evidence to the court for the court to consider. And at some point, after the prosecution has presented all of its witnesses, and it's presented all of its evidence, the prosecution will say, the state rests, Your Honor. And what that means is that the state is saying, we have no more, we have nothing else to say or present about this case. This is where we, like the phrase is, we rest our case or I rest my case. That's where we get that idea, is that the prosecutor says, Your Honor, this is our case, and now it's time to determine the guilt or innocence of the accused. And as you well know, in our court system, you are not guilty until you are assumed or presumed not guilty until proven guilty, right? And so maybe you're asking, why is this important and what does this have to do with church? (laughs) All right, so we're going to go to our scripture, which is 1 John chapter 2, just verse 1. So John um, is is the same John, or we believe that John is the same John who wrote the book of John, the gospel of John, who was right there as an eyewitness for Jesus, of Jesus. He saw his miracles. He saw him. He watched him die. He had breakfast with him on the beach um, the next day. Uh, John, who also wrote Revelation. That's who we believe is, is writing when he writes this. And so John... His angle on everything is love. That's that's kind of a theme throughout the gospel of John, throughout Revelation, but of course it turns into a a, a justice type of a situation. But John says here, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Most biblical scholars, by the way, believe that when John says my little children, uh, some, some versions use the word brother, they believe he's talking to believers in the idea that As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you're you're trying not to sin. You are trying to live a life of, of no sin. And if anyone sins, and just like that, John recognizes that we are not perfect, even when we come into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, here's the thing. When someone is accused of a crime, we want justice. We demand justice. We believe that good should be rewarded. We believe bad should be punished. We believe crime should fit, that that, that crime should result in punishment and that the punishment should fit the crime. Right? All of you are nodding along because this is built into us. We are hardwired to think and believe and feel this way. It is the way God created us. And there is nothing wrong with us believing and buying into the idea of justice. When someone does something, there should be a punishment. For every action, there should be an equal reaction. But can we all agree that things start to change when the accused becomes you? Think about this, when you're the accused, when you're guilty of something, you do not want justice, you want mercy. It changes just like that. Doesn't your perspective change just like that? Well, what I want you to understand is there's actually something else going on there's actually something going on in the supernatural on your behalf. It is a supernatural courtroom. Because if we sin, which we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so what happens is, in the supernatural courtroom... Now all of a sudden you are the accused but you've got an advocate with the father. Do you feel the shift just do you feel the shift just like that? 5 minutes ago you're sitting here and you're thinking if they're guilty they deserve to be punished but just like that. When I turn the accused <laughs> into you you feel that you feel that tension start to kind of build in you just a little bit, because you're you're like you're like oh oh. And for no, those of you that have never had the the pleasure of being in the in the chair of an accused in a courtroom, I can promise you, it's one of the most it's one of the heaviest feelings that a person can experience, because there's no one in that room fighting for you. There's no one. We like to say that you are innocent until proven guilty, but we all know in the court of social opinion, you are guilty until proven innocent. And so we have you and we have the advocate. And these are all the different players in our our, our little courtroom. And, you know, the prosecutor actually becomes accuser. I've got the word accuser on that. And so let's talk about you. You. Adam. It's the Hebrew word. It's, where we get, it's why we refer to them as Adam and Eve. Adam is actually comes from the word Adam, and it means man. It's the Hebrew word for man. And that's you. And you're born of flesh. You're born of a fleshly bloodline, which is, comes from Adam when sin entered the world and you were born of sin when you're born of flesh. It is the reason why you do not get along with your mother-in-law. It is the reason why when someone cuts you off in traffic, you either ride their bumper, you lay on the horn, or you just glare at them through your windshield as hard as you can glare. Right? It is the reason why you lie, cheat, Steal. It's the reason I spent years addicted to pornography. It's the reason why. It's the reason why, even this week, I spoke to Terry in a way that I regret. That's you. That's me. And there you are, standing there accused. And serving on the bench, the judge, is God, Elohim. It actually takes us only four words into the Scriptures to get to that word. In the beginning, God. It's the Hebrew word for God. It's actually plural, by the way. It's a plural word in the Hebrew language, Elohim. Is actually a plural. It ends in I-M, Elohim, which is where seraphim and cherubim, it's the same idea. It's a plurality. He's the judge. He's the creator. It's his rules. It's his details. It's his boundaries. It's his creation, right? This is his court. He's the one calling the shots. He is the one who's In charge. The third player, so to speak, in this courtroom drama is the accuser. This is Satan. And what John tells us later in Revelation, in Revelation 12:10, John tells us: you know what the accuser does, don't you? He spends day and night accusing us, day and night. And do you know what his manual is? The Scriptures. He knows that book. He's been around a long time. He knows exactly what's in that book. And he, he launches these acu- accusations at you. Which is funny because, you know, that's, that's actually what happened at the very beginning. You know how we know that he knows the Scriptures is because... That's what he used to trick Eve. He used God's word in the very beginning to deceive Eve when it said the serpent right, was, was the most deceitful, depending on words you're using, but the serpent essentially was so deceitful. And that's one of the reasons is because he knew God's word and he twisted those with Eve. And the Greek word um, in Revelation chapter 12, the accuser is katagoreo. That's the accuser. And he stands there accusing you of all of these crimes. And in the back of your mind, you know he's right. But then we get to the fourth player in this, uh, or or, yeah, the the fourth player in our, our courtroom drama here. And this is the advocate. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the word is parakletos. Say parakletos. Say that. Parakletos. It, 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 we, we say it paraclete. And a paraclete is an advocate. And there are several words that we will use and we can use when it comes to the idea of parakletos or an advocate. It means comforter. It means counselor. It means helper. It means uh, defender. You see, what's interesting is that attorneys, a, a, attorneys do not have a, a very good um, image in our world, right? Attorneys just kind of have a bad reputation, a kind of a, a bad name. They make up silly commercials, call all nines and all that stuff. And they just don't have a very good, you know, kind of a reputation or whatever in our world. And so it's very interesting that of all the things that Jesus becomes is that he becomes our attorney. He becomes our attorney advocate, our paraclete, he is the one who comes alongside. And, and you'll see this in the courtrooms, right? You'll see with the defense attorney, they'll turn and they'll whisper to their client and they'll say a couple of things. Because what they're doing is they're telling them and they're interpreting things and they're explaining some things to them. And Jesus, and he's turning to them and he's telling them a few things. And, and he turns to you and he says, listen, I got this. I got this. And so the accuser is launching these accusations, and he's saying this, this is what he is guilty of, this is what she is guilty of, and he's launching these accusations saying this is what they have done, and I have the documents to prove that what they've done is a crime, and I can open it up to every chapter and every book and every page to show that what they've done is wrong. And it goes on and on And on, because let's be serious, humanity does not leave the accuser with a shortage of things to accuse us of. And do you know what Jesus says when the judge looks to him and says, so what do you have to say on behalf of your client? Jesus says, he's guilty on all charges. And you're like, wait, what? What? this is the worst attorney I've ever had. What are you doing? How could you possibly say that? And you're thinking to yourself, this is like no attorney I have ever seen, but you ain't seen nothing yet. You're about to fire your attorney right there in the moment when he says, your honor, they are guilty. He's guilty on all charges because you are guilty. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This book is the glory of God and all have come short. Once, twice or 10,000 times. And you're standing there thinking this this is the worst. This is the worst situation to be in. The one person who's supposed to speak on my behalf, the one person who's supposed to advocate for me, the one But here's what you don't know. Here's what you don't know. He knows this court system better than anybody. You know how, you know why? You know how? Because of Elohim. Elohim is plural. Because he is. He is the Godhead. He is part of the Godhead. And he knows this system better than anybody. And you know what he knows? He knows that he is a God of justice. And a God of justice demands punishment for a crime. And you're thinking, I am in a bad way right now. Not only did he just say, I'm guilty on all charges, now he's telling and reminding the judge that you are a God of justice. You are a judge of justice and you believe in justice and you believe that good should be rewarded and bad should be punished, that crime should be punished and that punishment should fit the crime. And he knows this because it says, for the wages of sin is death. There is punishment, there is payment to be made. So here's your advocate, the one who's supposed to speak for you, says you're guilty on all charges, and says, and there's punishment coming for that. And you stand there in silence, waiting for your punishment. And Jesus says, but your honor, there will be No punishment for him, because if he knows this court, and he knows that punishment must be carried out, but he also knows that this court does not allow for double jeopardy. You see, double jeopardy is another thing that we have in our Constitution, in our Bill of Rights, and it says that punishment for the same crime cannot be carried out twice. And Jesus says, your honor, there will be no punishment for him because it's already happened. Would you do me a favor and go to 1 John 2.2? The next verse. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world. You see, the propitiation, it's a very, it's kind of a churchy word. It's kind of something that I I want to make sure um, that you understand. Propitiation means that something is satisfied. This is part of the idea where we get the idea that there is a debt that must be paid and this debt hangs in the balance. It hangs in the supernatural until until it gets paid and then the propitiation happens and then it is satisfied. You see, but there's more to it than just the idea that a debt is being paid, which is why one analogy in the Scriptures cannot totally sum up what was accomplished on the cross. It is more than just a debt that was paid. The propitiation, it says there is a tension See, the word propitiation actually, um, it, it says that something was appeased. You know what it means? To be appeased, right? So like if, if someone is bothered or annoyed or if there's tension somewhere, I need to appease you on that. So this morning, Scotty said it's 117 degrees in here. It was, it, he needed to be appeased. So we turned the air conditioning on and then all of a sudden kind of that tension, you know, that feeling of like, this isn't quite right. It kind of goes away, right? You've experienced this in your own life, in your own different ways. It happens between parents and their children. It happens between in relationships that kind of go awry, and then they make up at the holidays. The the word propitiation, what it does is it carries this emotion that there's there's this tension, there's enmity. And enmity is a word that we get in the very beginning in Genesis chapter three, because here's what happened. God steps into the scene where Adam and Eve have just committed the first sins. Satan is there, Adam and Eve are there, and here's what he says. He says, to the, he says to the serpent, he said, there is going to be enmity, enmity between you and the offspring of this woman, and you will bruise his heel, if you're familiar with this. But either way, the point you need to understand is that what he says is there is now going to be eternal strife, tension, enmity between these two, okay? Between uh, the offspring of Eve, and he's referring to Jesus, and Satan, there is constantly going to be that tension that enmity must be satisfied and that's what the propitiation is accomplished that's what it accomplished when he himself becomes the propitiation and at this point this this is where Jesus the attorney the advocate he opens up his case file, and do you know what he pulls out? A crown of thorns. And you know what he pulls out? A vial of blood. And you know what he pulls out? You know what he, he walks out the courtroom and drags the cross back in, and he says, here's exhibit A, here's exhibit B, here's exhibit C. Here's all of the proof that this punishment has already been carried out. And he lays all the exhibits right here on the courtroom to show the judge that that it's, it's already been played out. And that's when you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I've got the best advocate anyone's ever asked for. And so then you're standing there, and you realize that your defense attorney said you were guilty from the very beginning, but it's possible that you're about to be pardoned. But guess what? It doesn't stop there. Because here's what your advocate goes on to do. Your advocate goes on to have your record expunged. Now, an expungement is essentially after someone has been um, tried and convicted of a crime. So that is where they are found guilty or pled guilty. So they are, they are considered uh, convicted of a, of a crime. And a, an expungement is where you petition the courts to um, take it off of their record. You can see. You can see, you can see. <laughs> Some of you, are, you're already one step ahead of me and you see how good this is. And now your defense attorney goes to work. He does something unbelievable as he works to have your record expunged. There's a scripture probably many of you are very, very familiar with, and it's 2 Corinthians 5:21. Uh, he became sin who knew no sin so we could become... His righteousness, it's, it's a little variation depending on what you're studying, but so that we could become his righteousness. You see, I, I wanna make sure that you understand something. This right here is the definition of justification. If you have never been familiar with or, or if you're, you've heard the term justification, we kind of use it in the church world. Listen to me on this. I used to think that when Jesus died on the cross, that what he did was he paid for our sins and that is True, But it actually goes one step further, and that's what Paul tells us in the letter to the Corinthians, that he became sin who knew no sin, that we could become his righteousness. At that point, it becomes as if you were never guilty to begin with, and that is such an important concept. It is a very important concept for you to understand. For a long time, I believe that it was like, okay, well, he just went and he kind of paid the debt and that was the punishment. But this, this is what justification means. It means you are justified. And, and I, wanna, I wanna unpack that um, just a little bit more. I wanna make sure um, that you understand this. So there's a book that we study in the New Testament. It's called Philemon, okay? And in the book of Philemon or Philemon or Philemon, I don't care, uh, Paul is writing this letter um, to a rich man, whose slave has wronged him in some way. And when Paul writes the letter to the rich man, he is is advocating on behalf of the slave who has now become a follower of Jesus. He's advocating to the rich man on behalf of the slave. Hey, I know he wronged you, but he is um, part of the family, the body of Christ, and I'm asking you to elevate him from slave status to brother status. And that's exactly what the advocate is doing there. That's exactly what justification is doing. It is, it's, it's almost as if you go from the accused to you will not be punished to you are now a court official. It's like being promoted. Like you're sitting in this chair, they take the shackles off, they take the, uh, the, the jail jumpsuit off, they give you regular clothes, and then all of a sudden before you know it, you are part of the court system. You get elevated from prisoner to free, to brother of the court. It is very, very important that you see just what happens. It is way more than just dying for your sins. And then and, and that's the idea, by the way. Remember I said at the beginning, I said there's, there's way too many analogies about what Jesus accomplished for us just to stick with one. We can't just stick with the debt being paid. This is also why we refer to being heirs to the kingdom, right? At that point, then we are elevated to a status of a son, a daughter, a son who will inherit things from the kingdom. That's why, that's why we refer to that throughout the scriptures, that you get elevated to the status of an heir to the kingdom, Because slaves, they didn't get that. They may have had good lives as slaves, right? And they may have had the best masters, but they did not, they were not heirs to the fortune. And what happens here in this moment, when you thought it couldn't get any better, then, well, my punishment won't happen. Now, now your status has actually changed. And that is way different. So, court is adjourned and you've been elevated to this position, and you stand there kind of in awe. You stand there not really knowing what has happened. And then it gets even better. Because here's actually what Jesus does. Then the advocate, he actually left his place here on earth And what did he do?? He went to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And do you know what he does? He continues to make intercession on your behalf. Now listen, it gets even better. I'm not listen. It gets even better, because here's, here's what you have to understand, because you're here you're not getting along with your mother-in-law. And you're cussing out the person on Deaton Road who doesn't stop at that stop sign, right? And you, 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 are, you are continuing to battle. What, what Scotty talked about this morning about having to separate the flesh from the spirit. You are still in that battle. I am still in that battle. And guess what? He's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession on our behalf. Because guess what? Full-time job. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he's not gonna stop accusing you, right? He wants to remind you in court every single day that what North Wahala is going through is just a sign of this and the church is that and God is not to be believed and the church of God is this and Scotty is this and Neil was selfish and all of these things that the accuser, he just wants you to believe whatever he can throw at you so he can just continue to accuse you and continue to accuse you. And there he is as the advocate. And you know what he does? He says things like Paul writes in Philemon. He says, charge it to my account. You see, here's what happens in the book of Philemon. When Paul's speaking to the rich man, and he says, listen, I know he wronged you. Most people believe that he probably stole something from the master when he ran away. Running away was, obvious, was, a, was a problem, but also he probably stole something from him. And Paul, what does Paul say? He says, charge it to my account. And the advocate, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, says every day, listen, I know what Chris Burton did, but charge it to my account. Ch- ch- and, he, and, he, and he opens up his hands one more time to the judge to show him the exhibits. He says, just ch- char- charge it to my account. In fact, here's what he does, Listen. There's another term that we talk about that we, we actually learn from the book of Ruth. It's the idea of a kinsman redeemer, okay? And this is kind of an Old Testament law that essentially if a woman, in the case of, in the book of Ruth, if a woman was left as a widow... Then somewhere in her third or fifteenth cousin or something, you could find a kinsman who could then come in and marry her and redeem her because a widowed woman was considered, you know, substandard or, or, or her status was down here. And so the idea was that there could be a kinsman who could come in and be a redeemer. And guess what we have seated at the right hand of the Father? It is not just an advocate, it is not just someone who paid our debt, it is a kinsman redeemer. And here's the thing: picture the cross. Kinsman being related this way, Redeemer justifying you and satisfying you to the Father. That's actually what happened on the cross. Do you see how all of those concepts all come together all at the same time? And the thing about a kinsman Redeemer is that the kinsman Redeemer had to be related to uh, the person that they were redeeming. How is Jesus Christ related to you? He came here for 30 some years and hung out. And guess what? He was fully man. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired, he was weak. And here's what I think Jesus says. In fact, I I prayed about this. Um, I I talked with several people to make sure that I wasn't misspeaking. I, I think Jesus would say something to the effect to the Father, listen, I went there. I know what it's like to be human. I experienced that. And if it weren't for me being fully God, I would have done what they did. He was that human. He was fully human. So if it weren't for the righteousness of God, if it weren't for his deity, he would have responded in a sinful way just the way you and I did. So he is able to be our kinsman redeemer because he can say that, because he can say, I went there. I was tempted I mean, there's lots of references, my goodness, we couldn't unpack enough, we don't have enough time to talk about all the references in the scripture and the fact that he came and he was human and he was tempted. We can't get a better advocate than that. At the very beginning, we think to ourselves, we can't get much worse than the defense attorney who says he's guilty on all charges, but we can't get much better than that, but we do. That's not it. Because what happens in John 14, 26 is that Jesus tells everyone, tells the disciples, when I leave, I'm going to send the comforter. So now that the advocate has left, Now that our attorney has left and now he's seated at the right hand of the father as our advocate, as our kinsman redeemer, he sends someone from his legal defense team to be with us all the time. And what does the comforter do? Well, Jesus says in John 14, 26, he says he's going to teach you things and bring things to your remembrance. I don't know about you, but that seems to cover a whole lot of time. Teaching things is the future. Bringing things to remembrance is things from your past. And now you have a comforter. And and this is cool, by the way. So we use the term comforter and counselor, comforter and counselor. The comforter deals with feelings. The counselor deals with facts. Think Think about, right, the presentation I just gave over the last 45 minutes, right? The comforter is the one who speaks to your feelings. It's okay. The advocate has this. The other part of my team has this. There's an advocate and he's at the father. It's okay. And listen, you can do this. And I'm going to tell you why. Now, see, he speaks, the comforter speaks to your feelings. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes the comfort speaks negatively. We call that conviction. That's when the comforter, right? That's when the comforter kind of gives you an elbow and says, ah, 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 ah. W- Weren't you in court? Weren't you in court last month when your defense attorney Showed the pictures of his wrists? Showed the pictures of his side? Showed the video of him getting beat? Weren't you in court for that? Don't you remember what he accomplished for you? Do you really think that's a good idea? I don't think you should be thinking that. I don't think you should be saying that. I don't think you should be going there. I don't think you should be seeing him. That's the comforter. Trying to guide you along with some feelings. While the advocate is seated at the Father... Reminding him of the facts. Ah, I, I know. Charge it to my account. I, I know that, I know that I know I know she did. I, I, know she, she went, I know she went back back to be with him, but charge it to my account. I, I know I know that he sent that text, but charge it to my account. What's really interesting is that the word comforter in John 14, 26 and the word advocate in 1 John 2, 1. It's the same word, perikletos. John used the same word in referring to Jesus, the advocate, and the Holy Ghost, the comforter. He used the same word. Boy, that's powerful. Boy, that is so powerful. And and I I think of this when I hear the... uh, When I I think about the the comforter, how the comforter might help us in our our courtroom drama, it would be the situation where you leave this this courtroom and you're just scratching your head and you can't really figure out what happened. And you think to yourself, I need to tell this story. I need to tell this story. And the comforter comes along with you from the legal defense team to kind of help you write your memoirs about this journey that you went on through the criminal justice system, and you're not going to believe what happened to me, and I absolutely have to tell you my story. And ladies and gentlemen, that is your challenge. If you sat here this whole time, nodding along, agreeing and believing and following and saying yes, 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 then guess what? You have a story to tell, and I've got to challenge you to tell it to someone. The only reason you know about Jesus is because someone told you. So the only reason that someone else will know about Jesus is because someone told them. And, it, and maybe you're seated here and you, you're, you're, you're into the church thing and you, you know, yeah, I believe the Bible and Jesus and that whole God thing and he probably created some things and I'm not really sure about the, the, the flood or something, right? Maybe you've never really wrapped your mind around the idea that it's not just that he said you weren't guilty. He said you were guilty and that's the reason why he went to the cross. But then throughout all of it, throughout all of it, You were made justified. You were made righteous because he became sin, but he knew none. Ladies and gentlemen, would you stand? I have nothing else to say about this. I feel like, I really feel like I just want to leave it Right there. I feel I I feel like that right there is as powerful of a statement as I can make about what has happened and what is happening in the supernatural for you all of the time. Heavenly Father. Thank you for. Thank you for the scriptures that so vividly present the case for Christ. Thank you, Lord, for so many different analogies, uh, stories, references, and parables, Lord, that that <laughs> that our finite brains can even begin to understand or comprehend the infinite. Lord, I come to you on behalf of my brothers and sisters that are here tonight and I ask, Lord, that you bless them for choosing to place themselves under the teaching and the direction of the scriptures. I pray that you will open their hearts and minds to what was said here tonight. And Lord, I pray that you will guide their steps. Lord, I pray that they were challenged um, by what was said here tonight. Lord, I pray that you will remind them that found people find people and that we are called to tell others. Thank you, Lord, for the body. Thank you for this building. Thank you for the, the death on the cross by a, a perfect lamb who deserved it not. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So I, I have one thing for you to consider and, and, and you're dismissed. And that's this. Um, in our court system, you are not guilty until proven guilty. But in his court, you are guilty until you are proclaimed not guilty. Have a great week.